the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. I think we've all been through it. In fact, you might be going through it right now. The pain of not just being offended by the uh, the actions of another individual, but 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 downright injured by their actions. In some cases, it might be intentional, meaning that they are engaging in behavior to intentionally cause harm to you or embarrassment or awkwardness uh, to, to offend you in some fashion. In a majority of the cases, though, it, it's somebody who has not made good choices, not taken into consideration the potential impact of the poor choices that they have made and the ripple effect, like the proverbial pebble in the water, how it travels across, and the further out it gets, the bigger the wave, the greater the impact. Other people's choices can range from careless to cruel to thoughtless to downright depraved. The question then for we as believers is, how do you deal with all this? How do you respond to it? Um, how, how do you go about finding hope in the midst of that uncomfortable experience or uh, sometimes life-changing event? And at the same token, reach down inside of you and be able to extend forgiveness. We are reminded in the Father's Prayer that we should forgive others as we have likewise been forgiven by the Lord. But sometimes as you're surviving the fallout of other people's choices, that's a very tall order. Joining us to discuss this is Cynthia Rukti. Cynthia is the author of a brand new book called Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. And Cynthia, great to have you back again. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Well, I'm, I'm reading uh, through the new book here, um, Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, let me make a list of the people <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who maybe didn't intend to, uh, you know, in, intentionally engage in some behavior or action that would cause fallout or uh, injury back to me, but that was the end result. And trying to work through all of that as you're suddenly finding yourself picking up the pieces of somebody else's mistakes or bad choices. And I guess this runs the gambit of the husband who decides that, uh, you know, playing around on a spouse is an okay thing to do. And as a result, that marriage falls apart because of the infidelity and the children are caught in the wake to, uh, you know, a child who's abusing drugs. And suddenly now you've got grandkids that you now have to raise as your own because 
as your son or daughter, the true parent is finding themselves, you know, uh, as uh, maybe a, a guest of the state in which you live. Mm-hmm. Tough stuff. And and we all know people like that. They're either within our own families or there has been a season when we've been that person who's been injured by someone else or there are people that we know of in our neighborhood, some of whom don't have the Lord to lean on for their source of hope. It's people that we hear about on the news, but... But all of the stories that are written in the book, uh, Ragged Hope, Surviving the Fallout of Other People's Choices, they're real people, and they're all dear to me. These people are very dear to me. So their courage in sharing their stories, uh, all of our hope is that it will be that those stories will in some way have some impact on helping other people learn how to find those holding on places when it seems like there are none. You know, the tough part of this, I think, for a lot of us is it, it's it's difficult enough sometimes to deal with the fallout of our own poor choices. And, you know, I mean, Scripture is very clear that the wages of sin is death, um, that, you know, indeed we can find hope and, and forgiveness in a reconciled relationship with God through the work of his son on the cross on our behalf, paying the price that we should have paid. Um and yet, that doesn't always mean that we escape. We might, while we might escape the eternal consequences of sin, once we find forgiveness in Christ, of course, uh, but that doesn't always mean that we are able to escape the, um, the consequences of sin here on earth. The, the lifelong alcoholic who eventually comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ might well eventually still die from cirrhosis of the liver. That is the consequence of poor choices. But that's on us. It's when it's somebody else's poor choices. And this may not be something, as I mentioned earlier, Cynthia, where they intended to hurt us, but that was the end result. It's hard sometimes to dig down and say, Father, I want to forgive them. But wow, look at the mess now. I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly on their cleanup committee, and I don't remember signing up for this. And even beyond that, sometimes the person who is the perpetrator, if we want to use that word, even if it was just an, a, a mistake, a, a truly a, an, an error that they had no intention of making us bear these consequences, sometimes that person's fallout is so little compared to what... And they're oblivious, oh, perhaps, to the, to the harm that they've caused us, or just dismissive. Completely. They may not even care that they caused that kind of a fallout for us. Or they, they've they gone on with their lives. They have no idea the, the impact that has been in our daily lives, every daily decision, the expense financially that we pay, the, the price we pay emotionally for what they did. So, and, and then are caring about the, the others that they have left in the aftermath of their unwise choices. It, it really is a heartache that is a, it, it, there's nothing quite like that. There's nothing quite parallel to that. As you said, when we sin ourselves, we go and ask forgiveness. Sometimes we bear the, this tremendous guilt or burden of, of shame because we have caused fallout for someone else. And there's, that's another whole subject by itself. But in this particular instance, where I was reminded of what it was like to see that cloud of choking ash come rushing down the street after the Twin Towers fell. 
and seeing people who were caught up in that cloud they could not breathe and they couldn't find a place to breathe they were covered in the dust and ash of it all and there was no place they could go to find a place to take a, a breath that's oftentimes how we feel when we're caught up in the middle of this neck high or higher than that layer of the fallout ash when somebody has made a choice, one of these kinds of choices. Let's give an example of a a suicide. The pain in the heart and the emotional state and the mental state of the person who chooses suicide thinking that's an out for their own pain has left this trail of despair and heartache behind that they couldn't have imagined and we we know that many of them when they're caught up in a when when a a suicide um someone contemplating suicide when they get caught up in that depth of pain and they see no way out they really are not measuring in their minds and their souls and their hearts the kind of fallout there would there will be for the rest of time in the family members that are left behind, those who are aching, wondering what they could have done to have made a difference, those who every holiday is different, every day of their lives are different because of what, because of that choice, that single decision. And you really end up stacking the emotions one on top of another, don't you? I mean, for example, it, it's one thing if we talk about the death of a child. Some listeners in the audience can perhaps relate to what a painful experience that is. I mean, as, as we understand life, um, you meet, fall in love, get married, have a child in that order, they eventually grow up, and then you grow older, and then they bury you. Mm. For that to be reversed, not only now does the parent have to deal with loss, but stacked on top of the loss may be resentment from what has been taken away from them, um, anger, a sense of maybe even seeing that no wonder the, the, the root of bitterness, it, it finds itself in such fertile soil when you're thinking, how, how can you, we've given you everything as our child, been available to you in every way and you've suddenly engaged in this most selfish act Mm. and here we are now left in the wake of that and as I say Cynthia I think the challenge here is that oftentimes people people just get caught in this quagmire of of emotion and no wonder that this is this can be such a um, a block even to our relationship with God as we're trying to get all the questions to uh, or find the answers rather the questions many of which perhaps will never be answered Mm -hmm so true. We know, and we know from God's Word, that hope can't breathe bitter air. It can breathe despite disappointment and devastation and and that great, deep, piercing heartache, but it gets smothered by hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment and all those things that you were listing. But we're in this place then, if we're in the place of that agony, for us to be told, here's what you should do, is probably going to deepen our despair. If we're told this is, uh, this is what you need and we feel no energy to be able to even grasp the, the offer of hope that is held out to us, that's a very, very difficult place to be. But also we know from our perspective, sometimes that hope we're looking for seems very ragged. It seems like there's practically nothing left to it. From God's side of the picture, it is as strong and as sure as it has ever been. 
And sometimes the only thing we have to hang on to is clinging to the truth of what we know for sure. I remember when my my um, children were little and they would be solving, trying to solve a math problem or a science problem or they would be uh, trying to problem solve something else that was going on in their lives. And it would get more complicated and more tangled. And I often would say to them, let's start with what you know for sure. And it's such a wonderful problem-solving principle. So they would start there at the point of what they knew, and pretty soon as those pieces began to come together, one after the other, of what they knew for sure, what they could trust and believe in, they could get the problem solved. They could get to the end of what they were looking for. Now, we don't want to oversimplify it for the listeners who are thinking, this is, this is a deeper pain than you know, lady. But the truth of the matter is that is where we need to start with what we know for sure hanging on to the god of hope the one who even when when we're in the middle of a very vulnerable place and we feel like we're sticking out there and and all the arrows and darts are aimed at us and we just can't catch our breath he is still the one who is our source of hope sometimes all we can do is just repeat that to our soul, even as David did in the Psalms, is just tell our soul the truth while we're trying to wade through the worst of this. And a lot of it is coming down to developing the ability to differentiate, because I think a lot of times when we get caught in the middle of this this pain and there's so much tremendous disappointment mm-hmm. that we kind of assign blame everywhere, including God. Mm-hmm. And it might be true that indeed this individual in our life, it's a spouse, it's a child, it's a sibling, whatever, has broken promises and as a result shattered some dreams. Mm-hmm. But we have to differentiate between their actions and God's actions. Mm-hmm. And we do serve a God of hope, even at times when those around us might try to steal hope from us. We'll talk about that when we come back. Cynthia Rukti is with us tonight. Her latest book, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Today we go a bit deeper into surviving the fallout of other people's choices. Wow. We've all been down that road, haven't we? Maybe that sin was not intentionally toward us, but we felt the wake of their bad choices, and we feel as if somehow we're paying their price. Wow, how's that for a sense of injustice? This is like the proverbial automobile accident that damages your car, gives you whiplash, sends you to the hospital, and the drunk driver walked away without a scratch. Where's the justice in that? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. That sense of pain that oftentimes leads to the desire for justice, maybe in the flesh, uh, revenge. It's one thing to suffer from the bad choices that we make, but what happens when somebody else makes a bad choice and the fallout is all on us? We are exploring that today as we look at surviving the fallout of other people's choices with celebrated author Cynthia Rugdi. By the way, her most recent book, 
Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul. Cynthia, let's talk about this. Um, you know, I, it's, it's one thing for us to be injured by the poor choices of others, but then suddenly we feel as if oftentimes we're forced to pay the price and they walk away scot-free. Example out of the book, you talk about the couple who has spent their marriage life raising kids. They've made all the sacrifices that loving parents do. They've been there for all the school plays, all the sports games, driven them to uh, uh, you know, band practice and soccer games and all of that and helped them mend uh, you know, the broken uh, bones when that happened as well. Uh, paid to get them through college. Were there for them as they were getting married. All of this. And now Parents feel as if it's their time. They're going to enjoy uh, their time together. They're going to make plans for what the rest of their life or the second phase uh, post-empty nest looks like. And suddenly they find a major change. They have a child with children um, who, from some poor choices, has decided they either can't, will not, or are incapable of caring for grandkids. And now all of a sudden the agenda has changed. Mom and dad thought they were done raising kids and find out, no, we're about to go into it in the second phase of our life. We probably won't see the golden years of retirement until we reach our early 80s. Wow. Mm. And they're not only raising grandkids, they're raising hurting grandkids at the same time, too. So they have this drain on their finances, this drain on their their energies, this drain on the quiet that they maybe felt like they had paid the price to to desert to earn. And here here are these young ones under their care who are changing their daily schedules and changing everything about the way they thought life was supposed to look at that time. They're watching their friends. These grandparents may be watching their friends um, go on golf dates and travel more and all those dreams that they might have had invest a little bit more time in their hobbies than they were able to do while they were raising their own children. But then add to that that tremendously heavy gravity like layer of concern for these children who are hurting because of the their parents' choices and that is all pulled into this big pool of of disappointment and the cost that these grandparents are having to pay and that is not an uncommon story we we hear about it often these days so there again is one of those situations where it it can be a life or death situation or it can be one like this where they're just expected to do something and they do it gladly because they love these children and they want the children to be protected and cared for and to know that they are loved in the middle of the the uh, aftermath of what their parents have done, or if there there may not have even been a second parent parent in the in the picture at the time. So here we are in the midst of this kind of a daily burden that's placed upon us, even if. To, to the public, we would say, oh, it's not a burden, it's a joy to care for our grandchildren. It's still a drain in many ways. There is a hope there in the middle of it, and, and one, of the, one of the layers of hope is, is that these grandparents oftentimes have to kind of um, almost force themselves to make sure they're not missing 
the beautiful parts, the beautiful moments in the middle of that story. They have an opportunity to put those children to bed at night and know they're cared for, fed well, they're safe. They have the opportunity to watch some of those moments in their grandchildren's lives that they might not have had if the grandchildren were living with the parents somewhere else. And even though those might seem like Uh, small consolations they are precious and they do help to pad the pain of what they're going through and to and and another thing that enters in here that i'm i'm not sure i even made clear in the book but even that idea that the sacrifice that they're making will be rewarded in a huge way by the god that they serve and in the lives of those children as they grow and, you know, ironically, and, you know, some are going to say, well, that's just sort of a pat answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like a time heals all wounds. Sometimes we come up with these uh, these sort of stock or catchphrases that we pull out in the different moment, difficult moments of life. But there is a reality that, uh, as you point out in the book, Jesus, uh, as depicted in not only his ministry on earth uh, as evidence of it, but certainly within uh, the writings of Isaiah, Jesus is a man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he knows what suffering is like. He is another one who suffers because at the hands of others. In fact, here's an amazing thing to put this in perspective. We sometimes, as we're discussing tonight, Cynthia, have to pay the price, pay the penalty for somebody else's poor choices. A uh, few, if any of us, ever sign up for that willingly. Few of any of us ever say willingly, I will take on this. I will pay the price on behalf of a son or a daughter or a spouse or a sibling that's made some poor choices here. And yet Jesus did so willingly and knowingly that he ultimately paid the price for our sins, mm-hmm. our mistakes. And so if there's anybody who can really relate to what we're experiencing, it's Jesus himself, isn't it? And I think that's key to our own survival in the middle of these things is knowing that the depths of God's understanding are limitless and that Jesus very well does know what that feels like to be paying a penalty he did not deserve on behalf of people that he loved. I was reading just today in Isaiah, um, it it had a beautiful description of someone who feels like they're um, in such a vulnerable place. They're an easy target. They're easy prey that that the troubles that have come upon them have made them feel like they're standing on a high hill all alone. And you can imagine that if you're in the middle of a war, what that would be like to be in that position. And that's oftentimes what it feels like then to us, that, um, that the verse in Isaiah 30, uh, 18 says, nonetheless, the Lord is waiting to be merciful to you and will rise up to show you compassion. The Lord is a God of justice. Happy are all who wait for him. There's so much in that short verse, so much there for us to know that God is a God of compassion. He longs to be merciful to us. He will rise up. He will show us his compassion and that he is a God of justice. And the joy lies in for those who will wait for him to exact that justice as we lean into him, as we as we lean into this this one who not only knows our sorrows but feels them to to the very depths of his being and cared so much about them that he would provide a way for us to know 
freedom from what what we should have borne in our own selves, but also that he would care enough to come alongside of us when we're hurting. He comforts, not but not only comforts, he binds up those wounds that we have, the Bible tells us. And yeah, sometimes those those even a verse, a scripture verse, can sound like a pad answer. And that's not what we're trying to, to say here. We're trying to just point ourselves, and I'm talking to myself even as I say this too, point ourselves to the source of our true hope. Sometimes it's a bare, like, fingernail-like grip that we get on the hope that will that will help get us through these times. And we're we're not saying that this is a that is easy by any stretch. In fact, I tried very hard in the book to not make any of the readers, the potential readers of the book, feel that they were being um, cast that their that their despair was being um, disallowed. That that it was being made light of. Not in any way. Um, there's a beautiful verse in Jeremiah too that where God is saying, "Because my people are crushed, I'm crushed. Darkness and despair overwhelm." And they certainly do. I, I use this verse often from Jeremiah. They treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing. All is well, all is well, they insist, when in fact nothing is well. This is the same God. The same God who says he is the God of hope is telling us, I, I get it. Believe it or not, I understand what this pain is like that you're feeling, and I have a huge heart of compassion and understanding. So here's the, here's the big challenge. As, as much as you're suggesting that we do not want to be dismissive, the pain, the disappointment is real. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes, I think one of the biggest roadblocks to hope, as we're discussing, is this root of bitterness. When we come back after a brief time out, we'll ask Cynthia to give us some insights in terms of how do we go about like removing that ugly weed in the garden that seems to just come back again and again and again and takes over everything to the point where our, our eyes go to the weed first instead of seeing the beautiful rose that sits behind it. How do we go about getting to the, that root of bitterness and cutting it out so that hope can spring forth? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Best-selling author Cynthia Rukti with us today. Her latest book, by the way, Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Abington Press, and, of course, you can also get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and through uh, Cynthia's website, which is, get the right piece of paper here, Craig, CynthiaRukti.com. That's spelled Cynthia, R-U-C-H-T-I, Dot com. All right, let's talk about doing some gardening. Um, boy, in the middle of these experiences, Cynthia, as much as we're trying to find hope, hang on to hope, that root of bitterness can sometimes go very, very deep and be that major blockage that really prevents us from being able to get victory. How do we go about finding it and cutting it right at the root? I think if bitterness helped at all, Jesus would advocate for it. He would have told us in his word that, yes, let bitterness have its full work in you. And he's saying so much the opposite of that. We we know very well the kinds of things that don't work and where we're not going to find hope in the middle of, of our pain and our distress. One, one clear thing is that if we let our pain define us and mold us into something that's uglier than the circumstances are, 
um, hope loves light, but if we pull the curtains around ourselves and label ourselves as the broken one or the too young widow or the motherless or the addict or the jilted, we're making it harder to find that hope that our souls crave. Same thing happens with our taking it out on others. If we challenge ourselves to think, who is it that really grew more hopeful by taking out their pain on other innocent people? We wouldn't be able to find anyone. If we allow the bitterness and the disappointment to dictate what our life is going to look like, not only is the person who caused the pain getting yet another victory, especially if it was intentional, if that pain was intentional, but we're draining the energies that we need for survival. We can tell when bitterness has taken root if our thoughts go to the action against us or the mistake that was made or the or the person who got us into this position more often than our thoughts are going toward hope and healing and what's my next step. If we get mired in a place where we're not thinking thoughts like what's my next step or God help me take the next step, then we know that bitterness has probably taken a pretty deep root within us. This is something that a lot of people struggle with. And in addition to that bitterness, there's also that sense that we call it justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes it means revenge. Uh, We want to somehow settle the score. Uh, I made reference earlier to the notion of the drunk driver who uh, may be in the process of their going out for a nice party, gets on the road when they shouldn't. They hit us. We have either suffered permanent physical Injury, maybe even loss of life, they get up and walk away scot-free. And even on top of that, it could have been hit and run. That not only did they get away scot-free in their own physical injuries, which were none or minor, but they may have even left the scene. And we're left with all of this. And there's no one caught in a way, no one who's paying a price even legally for what has happened to us. If, when we look through the stories that God included in his word, it's remarkable to see how many times it's a situation just like that, where someone makes a decision, someone makes a bad move, and then here are all these people that are trying to live in the consequences or the fallout or the aftermath of those things. What, just knowing that God thought that those stories were worth including in his word gives a certain measure of hope in the middle of this also but honestly when we look at the the um the hurting one let's take someone who is let's take ourselves out of the picture and imagine that it's a friend of ours and we're trying to go and comfort that friend we know that there's very little that we could do or say so the words are so inadequate at a time like this and certainly if we try giving them a three-point plan or um, six ways that you can find hope again in the middle of this and here here's this specific antidote to bitterness we're going to be met with resistance as we try to do that but like Job's friends did if we go and sit beside the person that's when Job's friends were being the smartest and the most comfort 
there was someone that I was speaking with just the other day that was just at a loss as to how to help their their friend who was just mired in this pool of bitterness and every word that came out of her friend's mouth was full of venom toward what had been done to her and at the time it was it was a hard thing for her to go and sit beside her friend and listen to that but it was in the listening and the spilling out of it to this trusted friend that eventually she started to to un, unload enough that she was able to allow just a breath of space for something else to come in and fill that spot up. We rehearse our pain sometimes to an excess. Sometimes we rehearse our pain and the the bitter feelings that we have, the resentment that we have so much that we grow hoarse. And the voice that comes out when we're that hoarse is even more despairing and and despair feeds upon despair it begets more despair it's not helping our situation but we feel like it's the natural thing to have happen it may be natural but it's still a decision when waves of bitterness are coming at us naturally coming at us if we stand in the way and we don't move out of the way of that wave of bitterness we shouldn't be surprised if we get swept off of our feet by that wave and understanding, I think, at the end of the day, that God is still ultimately in control mm-hmm. can be very reassuring. Sometimes in the flesh and the secular, they say, well, there's karma. You know? mm-hmm. and what goes around comes around, whatever, whatever the phrase du jour is. At the end of the day, none of this escapes God. Certainly the pain that we are suffering has not escaped Jesus. He can likewise relate to our pain. And at the end... God is in control of everything, and I think that's the biggest place where we can lean. And as we lean on him, then we begin to surrender that bitterness and say, okay, God, I'm not in charge here. I'm not going to meter out justice. I'm just going to trust you and move forward and not allow this bitterness to end up consuming me because at the end of the day, the other person that you're angry or bitter toward, they don't even know it. They go la-di-da about their business. Sometimes they have no clue that they've even injured you or wounded you as deeply as they have. You know, it's interesting that if, if we're tempted to pull away from God at a time like that, we are pulling away from the only one who has any power to affect change in our circumstances or in us. We're pulling away from that hope expert, the one who created it and maintains it for us at his own expense, and the one who remains our only source of lasting and genuine and tenacious and durable hope. So pulling away from God at a time like that is going to allow that bitterness to take a deeper root within us. And then, just like the weeds in the garden, the ones with those deep, horrific tap roots that go down so far that you can chop at it with a hoe and and you're going to only remove the top and then it will creep right back up again, stronger than ever before. But you have to dig with a shovel and sometimes dig way down deep to root that out. And when we're in a place of such vulnerability, when we're so tender in the middle of that pain, the, the best that we can do is just that simple act of leaning toward him rather than leaning away from him. And when he sees that happening, he responds to us, and he, and he is like a, like a parent when a child gets a, 
it's an injury, the parent's first response isn't, I told you not to ride your bike without your knee pads. The, the parent instead opens his arms or her arms wide and welcomes that child into his embrace. Then when the child is comforted, the parent says, okay, let's take a look at that knee. And that's so the way that God is with us. We've seen this before. We know it to be true. But it's such a picture that I I long to have become so rooted in my own life that it's my first response. It's my default response is to realize that when I'm hurt and injured, God is flinging his arms wide open, longing for me to come running into his embrace. I lean against him. He comforts me. And then we'll take a look at the injury and see what that was. Surviving the fallout of other people's choices. Our thanks to Cynthia Rukti for being with us tonight. Her latest book, by the way, is called Tattered and Mended, The Art of Healing the Wounded Soul, newly published by Abington Press, available at the usual suspects, including Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Thanks, Cynthia, so much for the time. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Somewhat innocuous sounding or obnoxious as the case may be sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days. But in fact, it is the theme from one of the best selling video games of all time, Call of Duty. And I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be or television and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool and yet out of the very same mouths will come well there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children how can you dare even suggest such a thing well which is it going to be folks can media in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth can they teach children or are they not teachers at all Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can, out of one side of our mouth, suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool, and the other one say that they at the same time have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend 2.5, you know, million dollars for a 30-second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior? Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs 
to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, Violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated. It is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded, so you get um, you get to uh, go to higher levels, or you get expanded tools of violence. So you get rewarded for your behavior, and um, and so the violence becomes justified, and it becomes quote fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others. Doom, they are first-person player video games. In other words, when we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a, you know, take a joystick and make the, you know, little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in, um, I believe it was Mississippi, had in Pearl, Mississippi, that student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but well, he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine, just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still, their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now, but boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion dollars. I mean, we're spending, so I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing And most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here? Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, 
We're teaching our children that violence is entertainment. In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we as a society surprised? Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it? do to overcome all of this. We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 